This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, Shakespeare mixes fantasy and fairy tale, but he doesn't do it alone. He's brought a collaborator, and together they bring you Pericles, the Prince of Tyre. To sing a song that old was sung, from ashes ancient gods come. I am no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh which did me bring. But God of this great past! Rebuke these surges which wash both heaven and hell! Sir, your queen must overboard. Come your ways, my masters. You say she's a virgin? Me, that am a maid. Oh, most ungentle fortune have placed me in this sty. All right, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Roger that. T-minus one minute and counting. All is rotten in the state of Antioch. Pericles, Prince of Tyre, is answered the challenge put forth by the king. Answer riddle and he can marry the king's daughter. When Pericles realizes the riddle's answer exposes the king to shame, the king is sleeping with his own daughter, yuck, Pericles flees Antioch and returns home. Realizing the king will hunt him down, Pericles flees again and sets sail for Tarsus where he gives the people food to save them from famine. Off he goes again, only to be shipwrecked on the shores of Pentapolis where he wins a tournament and marries the king's daughter, Thysa. Returning to Tyre, Thysa gives birth to a daughter but dies in the process, or so we think. The crew is superstitious, but having a corpse on board convinces Pericles to throw the body over the side. But Thysa wasn't actually dead and washes up on the shores of Ephesus, where she is rescued and soon becomes priestess of the Temple of Diana. Pericles goes back to Tyre, but leaves his daughter Marina in Tarsus. Flash forward many years, and Marina is now more beautiful than her guardian's daughters. They plan her murder, but of course it goes awry and she's sold to a brothel by pirates, but Marina convinces the brothel owner she better be used as a tutor. When she meets the noble Lysimachus, Pericles meanwhile has been told Marina is dead and he wanders the world in grief. At last he stumbles upon her, they reunite, her wicked guardians are punished, and Marina Lysimachus are wed. The closer we get to the end of Shakespeare's life, the more we encounter plays whose authorship becomes contested. Now, part of this is based on historical research, but I find it convenient that almost all the work we try to attribute to others is also the work that is unpopular largely because they are, at the risk of simplification, simply bad plays. In other words, no one seems interested in showing that Shakespeare collaborated on Hamlet or Macbeth, even though in theory it's completely possible that he did. Disowning certain plays relieves scholars of the burden of having to study them, which would be a blessing where Pericles, Prince of Tyre, is concerned, since the play is a dramatic hodgepodge, a mashup of myth and fairy tales, that has the distinction of being one of the few complete dramatic failures in the canon. This isn't to say it doesn't have some merit, but this is generally only from the literary and historical standpoint. In other words, Pericles is probably the only play in the canon that even the most devout of Shakespearean producers could happily ignore. Devoted listeners to this podcast will recall that I proclaimed The Merchant of Venice to be the worst play in the canon. I stand by that remark and would suggest that while Pericles should be read and not staged, The Merchant of Venice should be discarded altogether. For the record, most modern scholars agree that Shakespeare wrote the second half of Pericles. The author of the first half is something of a mystery, though the strongest candidate is George Wilkins, a colorful figure who was apparently an innkeeper and pimp in addition to being a playwright. Apparently, he spent a lot of time standing before a judge because he couldn't quite manage to stop assaulting women. In 1612, Wilkins and Shakespeare were both witnesses in a lawsuit in which a man sued his father-in-law after he was stiffed on a dowry. Shakespeare is reported to have played matchmaker to the marriage, while Wilkins was one of the neighbors who was listed as Shakespeare's friend. Most of Wilkins' work hasn't exactly stood the test of time, but it's worth reporting their titles. 
The Three Miseries of Barbary, The Travels of the Three English Brothers, and my personal favorite, The Miseries of Enforced Marriage. Now, The Miseries of Enforced Marriage deals with a crime that later shows up in a play called A Yorkshire Tragedy, whose authorship was mistakenly assigned to Shakespeare in 1608. In what may not be a coincidence, that same year Wilkins published a novel called The Painful Adventures of Pericles, Prince of Tyre, and described it as the true history as it was later presented by John Gower. Gower of course, is the narrator of Pericles, the play which Shakespeare may or may not have written with Wilkins. Now, as for Pericles, Prince of Tyre, it is one of the only plays not to appear in the first folio, which was published in 1623, long after both Shakespeare and Wilkins had died. But it was popular enough to appear in Quattro in numerous editions, some of them during both Shakespeare's and Wilkins' lifetimes, and all of them had only Shakespeare's name on the front page. So all of these coincidences are, well, too coincidental to plenty of historians, myself included, and it's fun to speculate about what sort of animosity, if any, might have been the cause of all this literary mayhem and confusion. The notion that Pericles was written by more than one writer seems logical when one looks at the strange nature of its construction, for its plot is largely episodic and has several characteristics that are unlike anything Shakespeare ever wrote. The incestuous Antiochus is hardly a figure torn from the Shakespearean playbook, and the problems set up in the first few scenes of the play end up having little bearing on the rest of the plot. Now, this is out of ordinary for Shakespeare. King John and the Henry VI plays, which are also episodic, establish a handful of main characters and plot points which remain focal points throughout the play. Even A Winter's Tale, another play with a fairy tale plot that spans decades, has a fifth act that is entirely dependent on the events of the first. None of this is the case with Pericles. Antiochus disappears, and so does his wicked daughter, as do Pericles' advisors at Tyre and most of the people who appear between the first act and the last. The play also relies on a narrator to reveal exposition, another technique which is rare for Shakespeare, and the plot doesn't really settle down until the last three acts, with the story becoming more focused and more Shakespearean in both style and scope. So we'll never know for sure about the authorship, and all of it is mere trivia to the theatrical producer tasked with bringing Pericles to the stage. It's also trivia to the audience member tasked with watching it. Plays are written to be performed, and so regardless of the authorship, it's the dramatic question which ultimately must be our concern. There was a real man named Pericles way back in ancient Greece, but don't let that fool you. Shakespeare's Pericles is about as far from history as a play can get. The real Pericles was a general of Athens and was so influential in Greek society that there is even an age named after him. That's right, 461 to 429 BCE is the age of Pericles to all you ancient historians. It's a time when ancient Greece enjoyed a golden age of prosperity. Now, absolutely none of this is in Shakespeare's Pericles, who stole the name from ancient Greece, but the plot from the Middle Ages. The short novella Apollonius of Tyre, author unknown, was very popular in the centuries before Shakespeare, and either he or Wilkins lifted several plot points to help complete their play. Apollonius of Tyre appeared in the popular English translation by John Gower, which is probably why Gower appears as the narrator of Pericles. Now, Shakespeare's Pericles isn't exactly a great character, and this is probably the first challenge to be had in staging this play. 
We open in Medeus Res, which, for once, isn't a good thing. In scene one, Pericles has come to solve the riddle of Antiochus and hopefully win himself a queen. Why? What's at stake for the Prince of Tyre if he doesn't succeed? We know nothing of our hero, and more importantly, nothing of his motivations. The only reason we sympathize with him is because he's the least deplorable person on stage. Antiochus has fallen in incestuous love with his daughter, who, if we're to believe our narrator, appears to be complicit in the relationship. I tell you what mine authors say. This king unto him took a peer, who died and left a female heir, so buxom, blithe, and full of face, as heaven had lent her all his grace, with whom the father liking took, and her to incest did provoke. Bad child, worse father, to entice his own to evil should be done by none. The princess and her father are essentially running a scam that's getting princes killed. This is grotesque enough without asking us to also believe that Antiochus would have a contest involving a riddle whose answer is the very sin Antiochus wants to hide. I am no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh which did me breed. I sought a husband, in which labor I found that kindness in a father. He's father, son, and husband mild. I, mother, wife and yet his child. How they may be, and yet in two, as you will live, resolve it you. It is, of course, patently absurd of Antiochus to propose a riddle such as this, but that's the story we're given. By the end of the first scene, then, we have met an incestuous king, his possibly incestuous daughter, and the prince who has discovered their secret. What choice have we but to sympathize with the prince? The next scene is no better. We're back in Tyre, and Pericles is unable to be at peace because of what he knows. After talking to one of his lords, he decides to banish himself from Tyre, for he's fearful that Antiochus is going to come after him to kill him for what he knows. Now, there's logic to this, but it's born of cowardice, which appears to be Pericles' defining trait. He's arrogant enough to believe he can answer Antiochus' riddle, but as soon as he does, he first flees Antioch and then Tyre. Later, he finds safe haven in Tarsus by bringing provisions that will end a famine in the land, only to escape again when he finds out there's a chance that Antiochus may still be continuing his pursuit. This is the hero whose adventures we are asked to follow a cowardly and arrogant man who runs at the first sign of danger. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. We've seen anti-heroes before, but Pericles remains inconsistent. In Act 2, a tempest causes him to wash up on the shores of Pentapolis, and he promptly enters himself into a contest to win the hand of the king's daughter. From here until the end of the play, he is a hero much more in keeping with the chivalrous mode. He is daring, competing in the tournament despite an armor which was rusted because of the storm. He shows humility by displaying himself before the princess, even though everyone knows he has lost his fortunes at sea. Later, he will hide his title and only tell Thysa, the princess, that he is a gentleman. And he shows courage when the king accuses him of bewitching Thysa. 
One can suppose that the near-death experience of being shipwrecked is what caused his transformation, but this is mere conjecture. The play gives us an anti-hero, and then never shows us how he is transformed. Now, this may be the fault of Shakespeare, and it may be the fault of Wilkins, but whoever is to blame, it remains a major problem for the play, one which those who would produce it have to struggle to overcome. I don't spend a lot of time talking about the writing itself on this podcast, chiefly because I take it as a given. Shakespeare is Shakespeare. He was a magnificent writer, and so whatever one thinks of his plots, you can rarely argue with his poetry. But it's worth pointing out that the first two acts of Pericles are full of clunky exposition and bad dialogue, while the last three, at least, show some traces of the Shakespeare we've all grown accustomed to for the last 30-odd plays. Here's Pericles during the shipwreck at the top of Act 3. The god of this great past rebuke these surges which wash both heaven and hell. And thou that hast upon the wind's command bind them in brass, having called them from the deep. Oh, still thy deafening dreadful thunders. Gently quench thy nimble sulfurous flashes. Now, Shakespeare loved a good shipwreck. They appear throughout the canon, but this is one of the only times when he puts one on stage. From a theatrical standpoint, there's great fun to be had with this moment, even if the scene itself forces us to jump large plot points in a single bound. In this scene, after all, Pericles' wife gives birth, presumably dies, and Pericles, though in grief, agrees to throw her body overboard to allay the sailor's superstitions. Shakespeare gives the poor actor only a single speech to make, this momentous decision. Sir, your queen must overboard. The sea works high, the wind is loud, and will not lie till the ship be cleared of the dead. That's your superstition. Pardon us, sir. With us at sea it hath been still observed, and we are strong in custom. Therefore briefly yield her, for she must overboard straight. As you think meet. Most wretched queen. Here she lies, sir. A terrible childbed hast thou had, my dear. No light, no fire. The unfriendly elements forgot thee utterly. Nor have I time to give thee hallow to thy grave, but straight must cast thee, scarcely coffined in the ooze. Dramatically, Shakespeare does do one clever thing here. He does not tell us that Thysa is not actually dead. We believe what Pericles believes, which sets us up to be pleasantly surprised when Thysa turns out to be alive. Now, Thysa, of course, isn't any more a character than the daughter of Antiochus, and the only thing that distinguishes them is that Thysa has a name and isn't engaging in incest with her father. She also has a few more lines, but don't be mistaken into thinking she's a three-dimensional figure. She's a plot point to get us to Marina, Pericles' lonely daughter, who may be this play's singular point of interest. I've said before that Shakespeare turned to darker and more nihilistic plays in the final third of the canon, and this is as apparent in Pericles as it is in King Lear. Pericles isn't exactly set in the best of all possible worlds. Antiochus is an incestuous king whose own daughter is helping him to execute suitors. Cleon and Dionysa, who rule Tarsus, end up betraying Pericles, even though he saved their kingdom and then they arrange to have Marina killed. When Marina is rescued, she is sold into a brothel, where Shakespeare takes us firmly back into the rancid world of sex workers that he showcased in Measure for Measure. Come you 
eyes, my masters. You say she's a virgin? Oh, sir, we doubt it not. Master, I have gone through for this piece, you see. If you like her, so. If not, I have lost my earnest. About, has she any qualities? She has a good face, speaks well, and has excellent good clothes. There's no farther necessity of qualities can make her be refused. What's her price, Bolt? I cannot be baited one doit of a thousand pieces. Well, follow me, my masters. You shall have your money presently. Uh, wife, take her in. Instruct her what she has to do that she may not be raw in her entertainment. The sex workers aren't the only thing Shakespeare lifted from Measure for Measure. Marina is essentially another Isabella, the innocent who meets with a dark and unhappy world. Like Isabella, she is prized because of her virginity. And like Isabella, she works to ensure that she does not have to give it up. To every man who comes to her, Marina preaches. Something else Isabella, on the cusp of being of none, might have done had she found herself in similar straits. It is while Marina is making Puritans out of devils that she meets Lysimachus. Come, bring me to some private place. Come, come. If you were born to honor, show it now. If put upon you, make the judgment good that thought you worthy of it. How's this? How's this? Some more. Be sage. For me, that am a maid. Though most ungentle fortune have placed me in this sty, where, since I came, diseases have been sold dearer than physic, <gasps> that the gods would set me free from this unhallowed place, though they did change me to the meanest bird that flies in the purer air. I did not think thou couldst have spoke so well, ne'er dreamt thou couldst. Had I brought hither a corrupted mind, thy speech had altered it. Hold, here's gold for thee. Persever in that clear way thou goest, and the gods strengthen thee. The good gods preserve you. If Marina is the only person of interest in Pericles, it's chiefly because she's the only character who is seen to be fighting against her circumstances. Pericles himself never does this. He runs and he wanders, but he never truly tries to take charge of his own fate in any way. Pericles, like the ships he is always traveling on, is essentially blown from port to port and is at the mercy of the winds and the gods. Not so with Marina, who manages to convince the whoremongers that she would be better served as a tutor. The great critic Harold Bloom suggests that Marina's chastity is mystical, since it seems impossible for anyone to violate it. But I think it's going too far to suggest Marina has some sort of supernatural gift. More likely is that Shakespeare was employing the deft hand of comedy in this scene, inverting what was and remains a common melodramatic trope. This sort of scene would have been better suited in the Comedy of Errors or Twelfth Night, where the mood is already heightened and a zany atmosphere pervades the stage. Pericles is a lot of things, but it certainly isn't zany, so these comedic scenes in which Marina saves her chastity by converting the Johns who come to see her can't help but feel out of place. It should also be mentioned that Marina is 14 during all of this, which makes all the comedy almost unplayable for a modern audience, at least if the producers intend to stay true to the text. 
Marina is the only character in the play who truly sparks sympathy, and it's a pity that Shakespeare wasn't able to introduce her until the fourth act. Pericles gives the play its title, but Marina is the play's heart, for she is the true fairy tale hero in this strange failure of a play. Harold Bloom suggests that this play is, quote, the school where Shakespeare learned his final art, end quote, and it's true that in Pericles we see the seeds of Shakespeare's last works. The Tempest and the Winter's Tale feature shipwrecks and daughters unaware of their true origins, while Cymbeline plays out on a canvas as epic as the one used in Pericles. The pageantry of Pericles will also appear in these later plays. Scholars call all of these later works romances, which is a polite way of saying that they're experimental and defy easy categorization. This is certainly a great way to sum up Pericles. It isn't a good play, but it is a wildly experimental one. Theoretically, there should be enough in Pericles to entertain an audience. There are shipwrecks, marriages, contests, evil kings, pirates, an innocent girl, sold into prostitution. All these things are the ingredients of melodrama, but even melodrama can make for an entertaining night at the theater. Many productions end up wrecking havoc with the text. It seems to be the only way that this play can be staged. For centuries, producers have done things like cutting the first act, setting the play in Weimar, Germany, adding songs and dances, or actually bringing a ship onto stage to dazzle the audience's senses. These productions may or may not have been enjoyable, but if they were, it's despite Shakespeare's script and not because of it. The New Yorker, reporting on a recent production by Trevor Nunn, quoted Nunn's dramaturg, Jonathan Kalb. Quote, it is essential to see that the play is a mess, textually, from the very first minute we know of it. Anyone who does this play needs script construction before it even starts. Transitional scenes are missing. End quote. It's worth noting that Kalb also said, quote, it's a surprise that the play works so well in the theater. End quote. Kalb has more faith in the script than I do, but he is among a handful of artists who have tried their hand at rehabilitating Pericles in recent years. The play has become a darling among directors who all think they can save the play from obscurity. I'm not sure that they can, but I admire their persistence. Maybe the only way this play can ever truly appeal to audiences of the modern world. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about filmed versions of the play I've discussed. There's only two filmed versions of Pericles that I've been able to find, and both of them struggle to overcome the many shortcomings of this difficult play. The first comes to us thanks, as always, to the BBC, who produced a made-for-TV version in 1984. Directed by David Jones, it is deathly slow, but at least it is somewhat faithful to the text. The other version is more recent. Titled The Adventures of Pericles, this production was done for the Stratford Festival of Canada and was directed by Scott Wentworth, a gentleman who seems to have known exactly what he was dealing with. He told Canada's CBC Radio that this is, quote, a notoriously corrupt script, end quote. Wentworth, like so many before him, did a few changes with the script and replaced Gower's narrator with the goddess Diana. The cast does their best with what they have, and it's probably as enjoyable a production of Pericles as you're going to get. Nobody can quite overcome the play's strange plot or dull characters, but the production does at least prove that the play can be staged, albeit with a lot of heavy lifting from the people behind the scenes. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page.
If you want to listen to more episodes or for more information about me and what I do with my time, check out my website at www.joelfishbane.net. And hey, while you're there, why not figure out how to get your hands on a copy of my book, The Thunder of Giants. Available from St. Martin's Press, it's about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. Thanks so much for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. Next up, we go back to ancient Rome for the last of the tragedies. It's time for the tragedy of Coriolanus. That's it for Shakespeare and Bard. 32 plays down, 6 to go. Will Shakespeare has a play. Let's go and cough through it.